This morning we are going to be doing something very, very different. I, I, uh, we are preaching through Jonah. We all know that, right? I've told you that before. We're going to be preaching through Jonah. And Jonah is quite the interesting character in Scripture. Jonah is a historical character in Scripture. Amen. Jonah is historical character. He's not. This isn't a parable. This isn't a a wise wives tale. This is not a just a made up story. This is an actual event in Scripture. And we're going to go through next week, Lord willing, if we're still around. I don't know, all that jump roping might have worked and we're going to be raptured home <laughs> to be with the Lord. But regardless, if we are here next week, we're going to be preaching about Jonah and go through the whole who Jonah was, where he's found in Scripture. Just so, just to give you an idea, Jonah was a good prophet, by the way. He prophesied during Jeroboam, chapter, uh, Jeroboam II about the great victory they would have, the northern kingdom, and they did. And Jonah prophesied about that. We're also going to find out that, believe it or not, there are sarcophaguses that were unveiled in Israel that have a picture of Jonah and the whale, Jonah and a big fish, right? And by the way, it is a big fish. We'll talk about that too. But Jonah and the big fish, in that this is the sign of Jonah. Who was the sign of Jonah? Christ. We're going to see that. That's all tied up. Jonah is not found in a lot of scriptures, but the scriptures that are found in, apart from the Jeroboam passage, are quite interesting and, under, and it's, it takes some mental thinking, what are they talking about? And the sign of Jesus, or the Jesus, the sign of Jonah, is three days in the belly of the fish, right? That's what we understand it. But it's actually carved on a sarcophagus. And I will bring you pictures of that, Lord willing. How many are excited about that? That's kind of fun, right? Get to see that type of thing. And then the one thing Jonah did, and we all know what he did, right? He said, forget you, God. I am not interested in helping any other people besides Israel. Israel's the only one. To hell with all the rest of them. Literally, that's what he was saying. And as I was studying, and I've been studying now for two weeks on Jonah, and one of the, one of the first commentaries I came to, the, one of the first paragraphs, Jonah was an Israelite nationalist. And that word... Nationalists immediately perked interest. How many have heard that on TV or the news or the radio or something, but they call it Christian nationalism or Christian nationalists? And usually they bring it into the idea that they're all wicked, they're terrible, and they are terrorists. They equate the two. And yet, I don't know that Jonah was a terrorist. Would you call Jonah a terrorist? I wouldn't call him a terrorist at all. He just didn't want to see Israel's enemy get a leg up, <laughs> per se. So the reality is, this term though, do I believe he was a nationalist? Yes, I do. And here's why. There is not a person in here there has never been a Christian that isn't in some form or way a nationalist. How many of you love our country? Say amen. You, you, you terroristic nationalists. Well, that's not true. Why do we love our country? Because God put us in this country. Amen. And we're so thankful God put us in this country. It has gotten so bad that this word Christian nationalist and the left's use, and I'll, I'll just be honest, it's the left using it as a bludgeoning tool against your voice. That is exactly what it is. But regardless, there is wicked nationalists. 
But I think there's room for Christian nationalists to be a biblical thing also. Let me ask you this. In a sense, were the Jewish people, after they crossed the Jordan River, rabid nationalists? Absolutely. They wiped out city after city after city and whole people groups gone for the glory of the Lord. We are going to take a t time, and I'm going to try to get this on the screen here. <clears throat> but we cannot be scared. We cannot be... Afraid, scared, or timid. Matter of fact, I think Paul says it very... Does timidity a character quality of a Christian? What did Paul say to Timothy about timidity? Be bold. Be bold about what? The gospel. Now, there are Christian nationalists There you go. There are Christian nationalists that are bold over a law or over something American. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being bold about the text of the Word. Does that make sense? The thing that's interesting about America, and by the way, I'm proud to have a flag of the American flag here. But I will tell you, there are many, many pastors who think that's heretical. And there's a reason they believe that is, and it's, it has to do with Christian nationalism. I would guarantee you, I know almost all of you very, very well. I wish I could know you better, and I pray I will. But... I would bet every one of you, if you were to give a list of priorities in your life, God would be number one. Somewhere down the road after God, family, might come country. But country's okay to be in there. Amen. But it's always going to be second to God. That to some, is called Christian nationalism. We should just be um, jello. We should just be like, you know, all countries are wonderful and great and great and America's no, nothing special. Well, that's simply just not true. And the reason America isn't something like everybody other country is because they're, not that it was a Christian nation per se, but there are certainly Christian Judeo principles and characteristics embedded in the very constitution that America was built on. I.e., all men are created equal. That is a biblical idea. That is not a secular or worldly idea. That is certainly not a communistic idea. A socialistic idea. A socialistic idea would be all men deserve equality. The reality is all people are created equal. That means Nazism, which was nationalism, was horrendously heretic. They were not only murderers, we'll get into that. I'm going ahead of myself because I get nervous. I understand that. Because this, this is an important issue because this is screaming across your radio dial and everywhere else all the time. It's in your face. Don't be a Christian nationalist. Look at these Christian nationalists storming the capital of our country. If you haven't heard that, you haven't been listening at all because that's what they say. 
The problem is, how do we define Christian nationalism? I would be, I'm going to advocate that there's, there is good nationalism and there is wicked nationalism. There isn't just one point to it. And I will also advocate that all people, in some sec- sense, are nationalistic. Even the woke people have to be somewhat nationalistic. They're happy that they can be woke. Take them to Saudi Arabia and see how that works. So there are everybody, this idea that Christian nationalism is some wicked, horrible thing, is simply not correct, not totally truthful. Can Christians be this way? Oh, yeah, they can. And it can be very wrong. But we need to define what is nationalism. I gotta bring my notes up here. <clears throat> According to Merriam Webster, the term nationalism refers to the loyalty and devotion to a nation, especially a sense of national conscience exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations or super and, and uh, supranational groups. Now, this is similar to patriotism. It's distinct in that it elevates one nation above others. It would be good to avoid using these terms interchangeably. In other words, nationalism is not necessarily patriotism. Let's just be honest. In our country, all people are nationalists in one point or another. They are. They cannot argue anything different, and they're wrong to accuse somebody else of national when they are. Regardless, not all of them are patriots. How many understand that? I look around the room, and that's why I, I, I pointed out there's at least three service members in our room, maybe more that I'm not aware of. I can guarantee you, in some sense, they are patriots, and they stepped up more than I did, or that maybe you and I did. Both did. But that doesn't mean patriotism is not wicked. Patriotism is not wicked. Matter of fact, to be honest with you, The term nationalism, I told you, says exalting one nation above another. Can anybody remember if anybody else or when someone exalted one country above the other? Did that ever happen in history of the world? How many would say like most people in their own country believe they're in the greatest country? Or they know of a greater country and they want to immigrate there, right? Well, let me share with you a passage of Scripture that might explain who actually did that. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says, For Israel are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, what? Chosen you, when? Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Let me ask you, In the term of a nationalist, was God the perpetrator of nationalism? Yes or no? There is no question He was. He chose one nation above all the other nations. And by the way, the nation He chose wasn't that great because it didn't even exist. (laughs) The greatest nation at that time was Egypt. He kind of overlooked that one. And all the others on the earth, according to the text. 2 Samuel tells us virtually the same thing. And what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, before you people from whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established yourself, your people Israel, as your own people until the church comes in existence. 
And you, O Lord, have become their God. Again, is it very clear that God specifically chose a nation to be His own personal nation that He loved? Amen and amen and amen. The Bible continues. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, 21. And what one nation in this earth is like your people Israel. What is he saying? There's no one like your people Israel. This is the greatest nation. How many would say that's exactly what he's saying? Whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make you a name by you a name by great and terrible things in driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed out of Egypt. Verse 22 is very telling. For your people Israel, you made your own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. How many would say that God has placed Israel as His nation forever, according to the text? You can't say anything else. You can't say anything different than that unless you allegorize the text. I want to go to Israel. I want to see the land. I want to get pictures and videos and I want to spend a month there and just gather all that information and all that media, media I mean pictures and videos and just give you a whole, go through all the Gospels at once in pictorial form. That would be awesome. I can't wait to do that. Lord willing, it'll happen. I love Israel. I hate what the country stands for today. But I will tell you, according to Scripture and what we just read, Israel is forever. They are. Encyclopedia Britannica provides the following definition. Nationalism is an ideology that emphasizes loyalty, devotion, or allegiance to a nation or nation state and holds that such obligations outweigh other individuals or group interests. The reality is, God chose a nation, the greatest nation. It's Israel. But here's the reality. We're not God. We're not God. To be sure, nationalism is usually associated with Nazi Germany. How many understand that? How many would agree with that? When you talk of nationalism, we've seen it all across our all across our um, our news organizations and billboards everywhere that Trump's a Nazi, right? We've heard it over and over again. It's just like the Nazi. The Republican Party's a bunch of Nazis. Well, here's here's the reality. All they're trying to do is embarrass and shame those who have those views and silence them. That's their way of doing it. In other words, do you remember being out, how many remember being a child? Do you remember looking at somebody and calling them, you hogwart you, or some other bad name? <laughs> how, many, how many remember calling people's names on the playground in, high, in, in school? Sure. Why do we do that? We don't like them. Sometimes we do that because we can't articulate our position. Or we don't have a position. And they embarrassed us. To be honest with you, we are reading, we're going through ethics Wednesday nights. And we, we learned this last week that the Greeks, how many remember the Greeks? When we think of the Greeks, what do we think of? What did they do all the time, does it seem like? Philosophied. How many say, yeah, oh yeah, they philosophized. We even find that in the Bible when Paul was arguing with them about the tomb of the unknown God, right? Okay. 
So they, they philosophized. Do you know what they said? So if we think that's the Greeks, that they were all philosophy, do you know what the Greeks, who the Greeks said was all philosophy? How many think that would be important? If the people we think are the greatest philosophers and the philosophers are telling you there's somebody else that did it all the time, that's all they ever did. Maybe it's that that we should listen to and see as the most philosophy. How many agree with that? Here's the reality. It was the Jewish people. Do you know what the Jewish people would do? They had this in every area. That's why the temple was super important. But apart from the temple, they couldn't always go there, right? They were hundreds of miles away. So they built a what? They built a synagogue to do what in? Well, we know from Jesus being in Jerusalem, what happened in that temple, right? He philosophized, right? He was teaching back and forth about what he knew of Scripture. That's exactly what took place in every synagogue all over the world. They sit there, and the people that have read Scripture, they sit there and they talk about it, and they banter back and forth and debate back and forth. And what do you think that made those people do? When they got out in the world, how well prepared were they to be able to articulate the arguments from Scripture? Pretty awesome. I think we've, got, we've lost that. We have totally lost that. Some of us sitting right here today could not even tell somebody how they can be saved. Let alone talk about eschatology or, or theology proper or Christology or soteriology, whatever the case may be. I really am getting very, very confident we need to do this arguing and debating back and forth over the Word of God. I really do. It's healthy. The Jewish people, that's what they did all the time, and they're known for that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the church today is so uneducated and has no idea how to articulate, unless they watch a YouTube they get on a YouTube video, they'll spit back exactly what they heard. They have no idea what they're saying, but they'll spit it back and they'll look important. That no one knows really what they stand for, what they believe in. For instance, our country is killing babies by the millions. What does the Bible say about that? Where is your voice in that? Is our country wrong in that? Absolutely. Biblically, I'm reminded of a man named John the Baptist. Anybody remember that guy? He went up to the king at that time for that area and told him he was an adulterer sin. That went over big. He actually lost his head over it. He wasn't silent about it. Folks, we should never be silent about abortion. Now, that can't be our only calling card. But that, needs, that is a wrong to the innocent that needs to be publicly addressed. Amen. What about giving transgenders more of a voice than Christians. Is that a problem? Who are trans... Listen, if, if everybody was in the world was an adult and they just did their own thing, whatever, I still think it's wrong, but we wouldn't have to protect the innocent again. How many get this? We need to... We need to here's... here's a, People, well, the church needs to go out and say transgenderism is wrong. Well, that's obvious, but why? Why is it wrong? I tell you what, we need to sit in a public library, open the Bible that's probably on the shelf somewhere, covered in dust, open it up, and read Genesis chapters 1 through 3. How about that? 
Amen? Well, that's being Christian nationalism. No, that's not... If, if anybody thinks that wicked, they got a problem. That is our job as Christians, to proclaim the Word of God. And to proclaim the Word of God when we see injustice is absolutely perfectly right, especially for those that don't have a voice. These five-year-old children that are, that are having some drag queen in their read to them, that's a problem. Don't just sit there and throw eggs at that problem. Go in there and be the solution. Go read a book to them. To be sure, nationalism is usually associated with Nazi Germany. So here's what, here's what our world has done. Our world has done this. They have said, okay, here's the deal. All these guys are Christian nationalists that stormed the capital. They're terrorists. We don't want them around here. They are on our list as the worst terrorists that we're concerned about. That actually came from one of our candidates in this country. What is the one terrorist that you are most concerned with? Do you remember that? The ones that are from within. Didn't say it as Christian, but they meant it as the Christian nationalists. And here's why. The Christian nationalists, some of them are neo-Calvinists. Now you're getting way over your head, Tim. I'm going to get this, what's going on. You that were here in Sunday school know exactly what I'm talking about. A neo-Calvinist is a person who believes he needs to fix the world for Jesus. He needs to fix all that is wrong with the world, and he'll do it however he chooses to do it. If that means revolution, then revolutionize. Pick up your arms and change the world. What's the problem with that? It's unbiblical. That could be one place. Do you ever remember Jesus picking up arms to change the world? It's a trick question. Because that's exactly what he did. He picked up his arms to save the world. You see, he is our master and Lord. He is the one we are to follow. He was not shy in proclaiming the gospel and the truth. But he didn't go and eradicate one of the greatest offenses against God in the emperors of Rome who controlled the world. Matter of fact, he did just the opposite. Do you remember what he did? Whose head is on that coin? Caesar's. Every Caesar put themselves as God. And he says, go get them, boys. No. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. I think it's a very important truth. But the reality Nationalism is usually associated with Nazi Germany because if they can put you as a Nazi, no one's going to listen to you. And rightfully so. So this term Christian nationalism is very poisonous, even though it could be right and it could be wrong. How many understand? Adolf Hitler so, so, so the world is associating Nazi Germany to national Christian nationalists. That's what's going on. Nazi Germany was led by a homicidal maniac. Adolf Hitler was trying to create the greatest human race. Therefore, all Jews were expendable, much like all other races, because all other races were different than the blonde-haired, blue-eyed whites who weren't persecuted. This definition certainly fits with what happened in Nazi Germany. With this nationalism understood, politics pounces 
on the opportunity to affiliate, in a sense, Nazi nationalism to what can be coined as Christian nationalism. And they equate the two. Just over a year ago, something called Christian nationalism hit the American mainstream culture in the wake of the 2020 presidential election and the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol. Numerous books have appeared that explore the phenomenal, phenomenal phenomenon historically and sociologically. They tell us how Christian nationalism is racist, sexist, homophobic, right-wing, and even heresy departing from the Christian faith. Now, to be honest, in some sense, they're right. Because if you were in CE hour, you heard of these neo-Calvinists, and that's exactly what they're doing. They want to rule the world with their theology. Our national conversation about this thing called Christian nationalism became mainstream as a response to the so-called age of Trump. Here lies the problem. Like it or not, believe it or not, you, all churches, are associated with Christian nationalism. Some of us would say, Oh, no, I want nothing to do with that. I'm just going to keep silent and go to the corner and be to myself. That's not biblical. That's not what God has called us to do. Others would say, Amen, brother. Let's get our AF-15s and AK-47s and bazookas and we'll go overthrow the government to make it Christian again. That's over there. That's not right either. Both extremes are wrong. How many understand that? Both extremes are wrong, and both extremes can be put under the heading of Christian nationalism. How many see a problem? These guys over here are being accused of those guys over there. Politics has gotten heavily involved and maybe be the very reason the term Christian nationalist was even coined and now used derogatorily. Whether it's being called a fundamentalist because you agree with the fundamentals of the faith, a bigot because you challenge false narratives, or a homophobe because you denounce sexual sins, the goal of name-calling is always the same. The goal is to silence those with opposing views. Listen, a Christian has never been made to be silent. He has been left here to be vocal about the Word of God. Not about a political agenda or a political whatever, but the Word of God. That's what's important. This is exactly what's happening with the words Christian nationalism. They label people in hopes that their message will be discredited. So, Christian nationalists. Are there Christian nationalists? Can Christian nationalism be defined? This is a major problem. There is no monolithic definition for Christian nationalism. It's not as easy as we think. Are there Christian nationalists? Absolutely. But one size does not fit all. Does that make sense? Woke, there's actually a woke church. Do we want them to gain control of the world? (laughs) There are white churches, black churches, neo-Calvinist churches. Since the colonial founding, Americans have participating in creating complex and contested nationalities. They have been divided in their visions for the nation Represented at times by, remember this, do you remember the loyalists versus the, versus the what? Patriots. The Hamiltons versus the Jeffersons. The Unionists versus the 
Confederates, the segregationists against the integrationists. And still today, we find competing nationalisms on the left and right. Why should we be surprised? This process of national identity creation is an ongoing process. It will continue to do it over and over again. American history is a demonstration of the complexity of nationalism, and that is where I wanted to spend some time this morning to help you understand what's going on. How many remember the Puritans? The Puritans are the people, basically, that founded this country. They were the religious people of the country. How many understand that? It was all Purit- just about all Puritans. Not entirely, but I think eight of the 12 or nine of the 12 were Puritan. State churches, by the way. Let me give you the problem. The problem with that guy and that guy is they don't have this guy. And they're not living like this tells us to. How many understand that? This guy's got a wrong theology. That guy's got a wrong theology. We need to be right in our theology. Let me tell you what the Puritans did in their theology. Samuel Danford, pastor of the First Church in Roxbury, preached a sermon on Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, in which he saw, listen to this, Massachusetts is fulfilling the biblical Israel. Going into the wilderness to hold a feast to the Lord after escaping Pharaoh's wrath, the colonists thought that there was eternal significance to their errand in the wilderness. In other words, they are the modern-day Israel that ran away from the... How many, is that nonsense or what? I don't even have to explain it. That was what was being preached back then. Egypt is the king of England. No, I will say Egypt was Egypt, and the king of England is the king of England. The Bible wasn't making reference to America. And if it, you say it does, you are using a wrong hermeneutic. How many know what a hermeneutic is? Hermeneutic is how do we translate and understand the Bible. We have to understand it as it's written, not how we want it to be read. Amen? So that was, so Cotton Mather, how many remember that name? Cotton Mather. Some of your history classes should remember these guys. Cotton Mather saw that the New England churches as the golden candlesticks of Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. We are the golden candlesticks. By the way, how many remember the candlesticks? Remember that? Well, what are, what are they doing? Allegorizing Scripture. This means this. No, that means that, and that means that. Amen. New England Puritans saw the discovery of America, the Reformation, and the colonizing project as evidence that God was bringing near the millennial kingdom of Christ, not in allegorical terms, but in historical terms, quote, unquote. They literally thought they were bringing in the millennial kingdom when they came to America. Matter of fact, the pastor of the Puritans, while he was in Denmark, preached that they were going to start the kingdom of God. How many can see that if that's what they're doing, no wonder we're in a mess. That's the hermeneutics that America was built on. Now, are there biblical principles in there that are grand and great? Absolutely. Here's another one. Historian Ernest Lee Tuveson argued that the Puritans replaced the traditional amillennialism of medieval Europe with a progressive postmillennialism that was much more active and optimistic for the future. So amillennialism was the the name of the game in their eschatology for covenant theologians. Puritans were covenant theologians. When they came here, they turned into postmillennialists believing that this is the millennial kingdom. Just imagine, America has been the millennial kingdom for the last 200 years or whatever. Amen to that or oh me. 
The Puritans read the book of Revelation and came away with a view that God was working through his people to effect progress that culminated in the breaking forth of the kingdom. The Reformation, they believed, was the beginning of the end of this fallen world. From 1630s to the 1750s, Puritan millennialism was the predominant expression of the intersection between theology and nationalism. As historical circumstances changed, i.e. the Revolutionary War and the Enlightenment, theology continued to inform national identity, but did so in ways to those changing the circumstances. In other words, this idea of bringing in the millennial kingdom changes Christian nationalism to a fighting foe. You would put that Christian nationalism along with the Puritans, i.e. Revolutionary War, i.e. Civil War we'll get to, World War I we'll get to. One of my dearest friends, Dr. Kevin Bowder, how many have ever heard of Kevin... Uh, how many have ever heard of post-millennialism until the last three or four years? The reality was it was like a fly that we just pushed, brushed away. It is on fire today, and it is causing this issue today. Post-millennialists believe they usher in the millennial kingdom, and they do it by riots. They do it by stay. I wish I could read it. The church, according to them, the church is not to be inside the citadel. It is to be out in the marching of the riots. They're to be in revolution, whether it's peaceful or whether it's conquering, it doesn't matter. Our job is to be with the victims. Does that sound woke or what? So that was the early part of America. Let me ask you, were there Christian nationalists in America as it began? Absolutely. Then came this term, Christian republicanism. American colonists saw the English triumph over the French in the Seven Years' War in 1763. Listen to this. As the triumph of true religion over the forces of the Antichrist. That's what they preached. <laughs> After 1763, revolution ideas drew inspiration from the Bible. English common law tradition, classical antiquity, the Enlightenment, the radical Whig ideology, those liberal ideas emerged the English Civil War in 1642 to 49 and the Glorious Revolution in 1688. Christian republicanism was the earliest expression of American nationality. The blending of biblical language with the English liberalism is clear. In a guy named a historian, Jonathan Mayhew. This is a sermon based on Romans chapter 13, 1 through 8. How many know what Romans 13, 1 through 8 says? It is Paul expressing that we are to be in submission to the government, for it's the government's responsibility to Discipline the wicked. Amen? That's what it says. Here's what he says. Discourse on ultimate submission. 1750. Mayhew said of a people oppressed by a tyrant. For a nation thus abused to arise unanimously and to resist their prince, that's the king, even to dethroning him is not a criminal but a reasonable use of means and the only means which God has put in their power for mutual and self-defense. Did you hear what he just said? He said that Matt, Romans chapter 13 says it's okay to overthrow the king and put yours in charge. Does anybody get that from Romans 13? This is Christian nationalism in America. How many are there? Not that far, right? Mayhew believed that a nation ruled by a tyrant had a righteous duty to overthrow that tyrant 
because the ruler served God as a minister of good. When that ruler no longer served, served that divine purpose, the people were justified in overthrowing him. I will tell you this, if that's true, then everywhere in the world, every government in the world needs to be overthrown biblically. But it's simply not true. Because if it were true, Jesus would have done it himself, would he not have? Where do these ideas come from? How many think, that's crazy. Where do they, how many want to know where these ideas come from? Let me read to you where they came from. I'm going to read to you, and please get, don't get me wrong, there are, there's much good in this confession, but there is also wrong. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet, he has authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church. That the truth of God be kept pure and entire. That all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed. All corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed. And all the ordinance of God's duly settled, administered, and observed. For the better affecting whereof he has the power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is trans transacted in them by according to the mind of God. In other words, the government is just to be a hand of the church. That's exactly what that says. By the way, do you remember how many revolutions? There, there was the age, almost seems like they're the age of revolution, where we have the revolution in America, the revolution in France. Revolutions were going on. And there are multiple revolutions during that time because this is what be was being announced. It did come from the church, but from a wing that did not follow the precepts of Scripture. Does that make sense? Samuel Sherwood preached a sermon in 1776. Are you following this? Based on Revelation chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, entitled, The Church's Flight into the Wilderness. Does anybody know what that's saying? In Revelation, we find Israel's flight into the wilderness for God to protect them, to make the kingdom out of them. That is exactly what it said, 1776. The church's flight into the wilderness in which he saw the American colonies and the church as the church and therefore they were, it's the precursor to the millennial kingdom. Following the traditions of the Puritans, Sherwood used typology to depict tyrannical George III and the Church of England as the persecutors of American colonies. The king, so the king George III, according to this pastor, Sherwood, is from Revelation 12 and was the dragon and the colonies were represented by the woman. Folks, this is your American history. A Connecticut preacher, Nicholas Street, in his sermon in 1777, said, the American states acting over the part of the children of Israel in the wilderness saw the colonists in the role of Israelites of the Exodus, the revolutionary leaders as Moses and Aaron, Britain as Egypt, King George as Pharaoh, the Red Sea as a military struggle, and the victory in the war as the land of Canaan. <laughs> How many think this is ridiculous? This is our America. From the 1600s, we're all the way now to the 1770s. You say, well, now they have to gotta get, they got to get things right now, right? There's another one. <clears throat> Manifest Destiny. How many have ever heard of that? 1845. John O. Sullivan, founding editor of Jacksonian Periodical, United States Magazine, and Democratic Review. Here's what he said. 
Sullivan wrote that Europe aimed at limiting our greatness and checking the fulfillment of our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. Here's what he's saying in that. Here's the concept. The concept of the manifest destiny was Mexicans need to be eradicated, America takes over. Spaniards eradicated, America takes over. In other words, O'Sullivan was literally espousing a Naziistic revolution or Naziistic war in America because God told him God, that Americans have the providence over all of it. How many see that's a problem? O'Sullivan, he thought of uh, the Christian gospels thoroughly in American terms, presenting a second version of millennial Millennial political religion. In the words of a national scholar, Anthony D. Smith, he was convinced it was the will of God for America to overspread the North America continent, and because of this, America's rise to continental dominance was inevitable. Since America was a providential nation, it was morally pure. They're using the Bible to take care of their political ambitions. We also see O'Sullivan's racial prejudices in his nationalism, in that he saw the Anglo-Americans as superior to the indigenous peoples, the blacks and the Mexicans. O'Sullivan's nationalism was certainly a racial chauvinistic. And to be honest with you, it was uh, I can't remember the when people have messages from God, Pentecostalistic ideas. Now the next one, how many, okay, now we're in the 1860s. That's got to be done, right? In came another Christian nationalist. But his name, you will all know, and you'll know exactly what he did. Lincoln's nationalism was benevolent, generous, and exemplary while retaining its debt to theology. In other words, he didn't go half-cocked and make the Bible say what he wanted it to say. He just said, hey, this is wrong. This has to be dealt with. Amen. Lincoln was committed to preserving the Union. The President of the United States wanted to preserve the Union. But by 1862, he knew that it was impossible to save the Union as it was. By 1865, the fate of the Union was what Lincoln called the last best hope of earth. Now, did he view America as the greatest country in the world? Okay, that makes him a nationalist, right? Well, what happened? In 1862, he said that Lincoln called the last best hope of earth in, in 1862, and he rested that in God's hands. I don't know what's going to happen, but here's what we're going to do. In his second inaugural address, Lincoln noted that both both sides, both the North and the South, read the same Bible, pray to the same God, and each invokes his aids against the other. Go get them, boys, right? But in Lincoln's view, God was judging all of America for its 250-year embrace of slavery. And Americans had to change their conception of their relationship with God. God, Lincoln insisted, should not be described as being on one side or the other. America sh should care more about whether they were on God's side. And to be on God's side was to be on the side of the right of Scripture. This national vision was confirmed in the Union victory. And actually it was sacralized after Lincoln's assassination and evidence, especially in the construction of 1922 dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. The memorial describes itself 
in a carved diadem over the awesome statue of Lincoln as a temple. And it has served as the Laconian justice merged with American nationalism for a century. Matter of fact, Lincoln described after the Revolutionary War, or after the Civil War, Lincoln described this new nation as this. A new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are what? Created equal. All men are created equal. This was in stark contrast to what America had known and what the world and their natural monarchies. How many natural monarchies? If you're born in the right family, you're good. All the rest of you are serfs. So there, how many can see that Lincoln can be viewed as a good Christian nationalism using biblical principles to advocate what's in the world? Then there came a guy named Woodrow Wilson. How many have ever heard of Woodrow Wilson? Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president, led the American War in World War I, beginning in 1917. He believed God had commissioned America to lead the world into Christian civilization through the defeat of the central powers and the establishment of the League of Nations. I mean, that's what our president was trying to do. A historian named Milan Babic connected Wilson's vision to Puritan millennialism. He said this, the old Puritan dream of returning to the old world from the transatlantic refuge in order to spread the American millennium worldwide seemed to him on the verge of fulfillment. Wilson's dream of an international order of Christian civilization led by the United States, animated American interventionalist foreign policy during the course of the 20th century. In other words, we're America, we can fix this. That was the dream and the idea that Wilson had. Let me ask you, was Wilson a Christian nationalist? Absolutely. He thought he, he thought... There's another historian, Duels, repeatedly reminded Americans that there, was a Christ, that there was a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and the most powerful champion of civilization. Thus, American, America had both a unique capacity and a duty to stand for human freedom against the foe of human freedom and the Soviet Union. Americans as one another historian said, have seen themselves as a progressive, redemptive force. Does that ring a bell? A progressive, redemptive force waging war in the ranks of Christian army, liberating those in bondage and healing the afflicted. I will tell you this, as soon as a government gets involved in church affairs, it goes rogue. It goes rogue every time because the government is held by unsaved people, done by unsaved people, unregenerate. They have no... How many understand this? It never goes right. That's where Christ comes. He will set all things new. Okay. What about World War II or what about beyond that? Well, let's jump ahead a little bit and go to 1977. Some of you actually remember that date. I was seven, eight years old, not 78. In a 1977 book appeared that launched the Christian America movement, The Light and Glory by Peter Marshall. How do you remember Peter Marshall? Peter Marshall and David Manuel sold hundreds of thousands of copies and remains popular today. Marshall and Manuel argue that America was God's new Israel, chosen to be the light to the Gentiles. The Christian America thesis is what it was called, the argument that America was founded on a Christian as a Christian nation is based on a 
declination. on a wrong narrative. I will tell you this. Puritan's Christianity is not today's evangelical or the early church's Christianity. It is a theology based on types and allegories which makes them want to fix the world and it can't be fixed without Christ. Figures like, okay, so America is a Christian nation. This is the thing. How many have heard this before? It's a Christian nation, Christian nation, Christian nation. Figures like Tim LaHaye, Jerry Falwell, Sr., David Barton, um, I don't know all the rest of these guys, and others produce books, pamphlets, curricula, multimedia to advance the Christian America thesis. Historically, advocates of the Christian America thesis have argued that the founders were Christians. The Great Awakening set the stage for revolution, and the founding documents, listen to this, were inspired from Christian sources. Theologically, they argue from a providential view of history that America exceptionalism was evidence of God's unique blessing on the nation and that America was the chosen nation of God. There has been one chosen nation of God, and that was which we just read. Philosophically, the original intent of the founders may be discerning, may be discerned using the hermeneutical methods similar to what would be used to interpret Scripture by using them allegorically. Folks, we are going to continue to see Christian nationalism take up firearms and go after the government because they view it's their God-given duty, because they're allegorizing Scripture. How many understand that? We have been called to be the light and salt of the earth. That means... We have a voice for God and tell people what the Bible says. It doesn't say to take up arms and overthrow the government. It says to love and serve people and to proclaim the gospel to them. That is our God-given job. Now, do we love America and therefore we will do that? Yes. Does that maybe make us a Christian national? Sure, but not the wrong side of one. But you need to know you are affiliated with those guys. So how many think it's important to know what those guys believe? Absolutely. You can't be those guys, which I think too many Christians are. And you can't be those guys. So what does it mean? I will tell you this. Jonah is the perfect example of what not to do. Jonah wasn't there, but he was there. Jonah said, if I preach the gospel to these guys, they're going to repent, and I don't want that to happen. Because God's God, and he's, He can do whatever, and I know Him, and you know what He's going to do. So I'm going to go the exact opposite way and disobey Him and turn my back on those that need the gospel. Let me ask you, how many churches are doing that exact same thing? That's the wrong corner. That's the wrong corner. This is the only right corner to be in. Don't be silent. Don't be rabid. Be biblical. You have a voice to proclaim the Word of God. Murder is sin. Abortion's wrong. God created man and woman, not it. Our young people in this country are on a fast decline. And it's because we're either there or making a fool of ourselves over there. This is where God wants us. Stay here. Don't move from it. Do not be silent with it. Proclaim the gospel. Serve others. 
love others. But be truthful. Be biblical. Because they're going to hear it from everyone else. You better give them the truth. All these are lies. This is the truth. All right. Is that helpful to you about Christian nationalism? And it, it goes right in with our Sunday school class and what we've been talking about for the last six weeks in the theology of vocation. And I thought, man, since Jonah is considered a nationalist, we better know about what that means. How many have a better idea and a grasp of what that means? All right. It's convoluted. It's very difficult. And people are using it as a bludgeoning to silence you. We're not that. We shouldn't be that. Let's read this and proclaim this as it's written. Scott, could you stand and close this order, please?